Welcome back, everyone, to Real Presence Live as we begin the Straight Talk segment for today's show. 877-795-0122 is how you can operate those touch tones and call us with any questions that you have about the faith. You can also submit questions on your Facebook page, and there are a lot of different things that we're looking forward to visiting with you about today. So, Father Leffer, anything uh, and any burning questions that have come to you so far? Well, sure. The... Uh well, first of all, we should acknowledge we almost had to have Dr. Jeffrey for the next segment because she got entangled into all the, uh, the the cords and headphones in the studio, and we had to work to pry her out of there. So she almost had to stay for the rest of the segment. We had to unlock the door <clears throat> to let her out. Had yeah. to get some emergency personnel to come in and, and assist with that. So, <laughs> but we're all good now. We're all we're ready to fly here. Yes, indeed. Okay, so a text message has come in from Robert. This is a uh, identity question, I guess we would say. Uh-huh. And uh, so I'm sure we'll each have something to comment on this one. Okay, so he asks, or statement, and then he asks, um, priests have such a great opportunity to evangelize just by wearing their clerics in public. So why is it that I see so many priests who choose not to wear them in public? Okay, mm-hmm. so it's kind of an identity question here, and I guess an evangelization question, too, uh, off of what Dr. Jeffrey Uh, was sharing with us there in that last segment. Right, right. Um, I think part of it probably, at least in our current setting, um, can be reflected upon uh, certain generations or vintages of priests and what their experience had been. I think that some of the guys who were ordained uh, shortly after the Second Vatican Council might be more inclined at times not to uh, be wearing clerics you know, I have a perfect um, example. I, I, it might be too, a dangerous stereotype, but I think there's well, something well, no, to but, that. But here's a perfect example of what I think what you're saying, and it's a real life living thing. Recently, I was in a gathering of, of, of priests, and um, and these were questions that were being, uh, in a kind of official capacity, being uh, talked about. And it had to do with, the, the question came up, when should seminarians start wearing their clerics? Okay, yes. So when we say clerics, it means the black attire and the mm-hmm. collar, so you, you're identifiable as a priest. Mm-hmm. And, and it was interesting, so the, the, the younger crowd in the group were like, well, gosh, as, as, as soon as they take candidacy, they, they should be wearing clerics. They should be getting familiar with what... Now, taking candidacy means you've been officially received by the church and major right. seminary, and your intention is to study to become a priest. Right. You're not you, ordained yet. Right, yeah. Kind of a thing. And so the, the younger crowd was like, you know, hey, it's really important that they, they wear those. They learn... Because when you wear those, it, it does something to your personal identity, and it does something to people react, and you have to figure out how do you handle this when suddenly you're a public figure. Suddenly you're kind of bearing the weight of the church on your shoulders about how you're behaving in publicly, what you're doing, even things like where you where you go to eat, what kind of movies you go to. All I mean, there's public mm-hmm. thing. Then the the older crowd of priests who are so these are all priests who are mm-hmm. the older crowd. Um, one of them he he had a per- really strong objection. He 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 just said. It's like, no, they, they shouldn't be wearing, the, you're going to confuse the lay people. You shouldn't be confusing the lay people with, because they're not priests yet. And, and why are they doing that? And they, they, they shouldn't be doing that. And I, I think that's wrong. 
So isn't that interesting? Kind of oh, yeah. different. So what? I don't know. What do you? Well, think about in that? the seminary that I attended in the '90s, um, we only wore clerics once we were ordained as deacons, and that was the identification there. But uh, I think what might be jarring to some guys is that college seminarians who haven't even entered into the minor orders of lector or acolyte, you know, are are wearing the clerics. But um, as kind of to sidestep that a little bit, a lot of people use the um, analogy of you know a, a police officer. Would you know a police officer is on duty if they didn't have their, their uniform that they're wearing? And aren't you glad that you can recognize them when you need them? So similarly, people would say that uh, it's important for us to be wearing our clerics, despite whatever negative thing might happen. And certainly there are parts of the country where I think our brother priests are getting a lot more grief than we do around here if they're walking down the street, if they're in public areas okay, so wearing their clerics. Okay, so let's just take some very common experiences for you, and I will share share with people like the, the, right. what it's like from a priest perspective okay like i was doing the golf joke earlier it wasn't a joke it's actually a story about the, the fifth of scotch but anyway the um but i'm going golfing t- uh later today with a, a, a very dear personal friend and later okay. having supper with his family right so when i go out there golfing i'm not going to be wearing my clerics although i do know a couple of brother priests who do wear their clerics when they golf or whatever but it's it, it, we're out there and at that point you know he knows who i am kind of a thing and i i know he is and it's just the two of us kind of a thing but mm-hmm. then, so here's honestly a question I have. Like, okay, you know, afterwards, as we go to their family, they all know, um, I probably will change back into my clerics when I gather with the family. Or I would, I would have the freedom to either not wear them or to wear them. Mm-hmm. But part of it is to, like, you know, they have young children and young boys and stuff. And, and I just, I personally want them to see me and my clerics, so to give them a visual thought mm-hmm. about, not that I have to be actively evangelizing all the time, but it's kind of a passive one by just wearing it and seeing, hey, Father's normal in our environment wearing his clerics or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's kind of cool, yep. you know, whatever. Right. I, I have a reflection on that. First of all, I want to just give our number again quickly for the Straight Talk segment. It is 877-795-0122, so please call in, or you can leave your question on our Facebook page. Another question, another Part of this whole argument that I have is that if a priest, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, if a priest is kind of spending an inordinate amount of time and money on uh, an other wardrobe, you know, and if that ends up being kind of expensive things like uh, Armani jackets and slacks and things like that, that could cause a certain scandal because in and of itself, it really stands in opposition to the poverty in a sense that we are supposed to embody. So the thing about clerics is that when I'm wearing this, I am at home among both the rich and the poor. If I put on a, cl- a black clerical suit jacket, I can be standing in a room of millionaires, and I could be, you know, in in any other setting besides. So that I think that bespeaks a certain wisdom to the to clerical garb too. No, and then here's here's one thing I talk about that I don't think lay people would ever tune into or think about because they're they're not living life of ordained priests. But I think one of the things that stresses me out personally about this whole question mm-hmm. is. Like, just how competitive we are as brother priests. Like, yeah. when we get together as brother priests, where instead of having room for my brother, how he chooses or so forth, or, or encouraging him in his life, like, we can look at each other and be so critical and tear each other down. Or if, especially when there's a younger priest and he has that new zeal and really eager, has that extra energy. Taking the world that, by the tail. Well, yeah. no, but he has that extra energy that maybe you and I have kind of waned in because we're, you know, beaten down a little bit in life forever. You know, when I see like a brother priest come in and just crash his party, oh, get those clerics off, you don't need to wear those here, whatever. And, and instead of saying like, 
Wow, I'm inspired by your willingness to to wear that and to be a sign in in God's world, or or sure. but different things that we brother priests can do to each other to instead of build each other up, kind of mm-hmm. tear down or to pass yeah. judgment one another. And unfortunately, exactly. sometimes it's taken on a political tone. Like mm-hmm. if a priest dresses one way, he's political that way. If he dresses another way, he's political that yeah. way. And and so part of that is we priests, we ourselves need to be converted. And I, yeah. I love what you said, Father Gross, about that simplicity of life. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's a very real thing. And it's a constant challenge, especially we secular priests, which means we live in the world. Mm-hmm. We're constantly tempted to those worldly expressions yeah. and design. There has to be that balance between relating to lay people right. and being a sign and mm-hmm. symbol for them. Yeah. And we do have a question waiting. But before we get to that, I just this might be a little f- a field, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the memorial of St. John Vianney. And one of my favorite stories about him is that there was a gathering of priests from maybe a deanery or whatever. And one of his neighboring priests was upbraiding him because... Because what is this I hear about you, Father? You know that uh, you're giving very light penances to certain penitents. He said, "Doesn't don't you realize that makes you look that makes us look bad and severe, rigorous, all the rest of it?" And uh, John Vianney simply said, I, "I'm sorry, Father, but I think you are mistaken about something. Yes, I give penances, but in some cases, I only pass a portion of them onto the penitent, and the rest of the penance I perform myself." And so that was a <laughs> real stand, a way of you know not trying to own your opponent or win the argument, but trying to diffuse that competition, that unsavory sorts of... Do you know, okay, what you just said, it totally freaked me out one day as, as a priest. Um, I was reading in the catechism. There's actually a line in there that says that the, the confessor has an obligation to do penance for his penitents. I, I, am, I went before the Lord, please, please Lord, no, no. But, it, but it's true. We, <laughs> if I start now, how can I possibly make up for the last no one? <laughs> you know, so what I, what I tend yeah, to do, like yeah. as, as, a, as the confessor, I tend to say a Hail Mary for them as they are making their act of contrition. Because I'm like, again, it's such a little thing, but I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, help me identify with this person and right to be in solidarity with them thank you to uh blaze who submitted a question on facebook very simple question was saint paul a bishop yes uh we understand him to be a bishop scriptural evidence i would point to i'd have to look it up in the fly it's one of the letters of saint timothy uh and he speaks about um how uh through the imposition of my hands uh, you know so talking about that gesture of the laying on of hands is the kind of the material element you might say of the sacrament of holy orders well a you know a bishop is conferring priesthood you know or the episcopacy you know as as timothy was was a bishop as well um so would saint paul have spoken about that if he weren't himself involved in that and if that weren't actually happening through him and within the church so when you go to an ordination and you see that moment where in silence the bishop is placing his hands upon uh, the head of the uh, the man who is being ordained um, as he is kneeling before him for those few seconds that is an ancient gesture that goes back to apostolic times in addition to the fact that of course the sacraments were instituted by christ Okay, and so then to build on on what you have demonstrated there to give other evidence is that, um, and if you look at his, his actions, what he did, uh, the number of times that he goes up to Jerusalem, he so the first ecumenical council, which is the bishops, the mm-hmm. the apostles, and 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 there they are all gathered together. It's the apostles who are the bishops mm-hmm. who gather to do those things. To this day, the twenty two ecumenical councils, it's the bishops who gather, and and. Uh, and none of that, but he the passages where he says, um, you know, 
yeah, are you, you're comparing me to these other apostles. Am I not? I'm a super apostle, meaning that yeah. he was called second extra, layer of the extraordinarily, not not in the ordinary way, but mm-hmm. super, above and beyond the normal way that the other apostles were called. He was called by Christ personally, and then he enters into a relationship with Peter, and he was under the authority of Peter. Mm-hmm. Even though he challenged St. Peter directly, right. he was under that authority, and it was only with Peter's blessing that he went and did yep. the missions he did. And, and the collegiality there between them is beautiful to see where Peter says in the Acts of the Apostles, I see now that God shows no partiality, that I must not demand things of the Gentiles that are not necessary, that we have to look at whether or not we have to make them Jewish before they become Christian and, you know, those sorts of things. So there is there, there is an authority not only in terms of uh, the written word, but within the uh, ecclesiology with, within the life of the church. So uh, Straight Talk is the segment that we are right in the middle of. We've got plenty of time to answer your questions. 877-795-0122. We do a uh, we, we do a decent job here um, with regard to um, uh, speaking about these topics, but you make the show truly great when we can hear your voice and we can hear your questions in the air. Now, Father Gross, you have a number of burning topics there. Let's <laughs> let's grab one of those. Yes. We, we, can, we don't have enough time here to go through them. You have fantastic ideas here this morning. Right, right. Well, one thing that I wanted to bring up is a recent Our Sunday Visitor uh, had a cover story, What is the Problem with Flannery O'Connor? This was a woman who uh, grew up in Georgia, a Catholic uh, in the Deep South who died uh, tragically of the disease of lupus at the young age of 39, but became a very renowned, uh, you know, kind of, I think for a lot of uh, hipster literature uh, fans in America, a renowned author. And uh, there is a university, I believe it was Loyola University of Maryland, that decided to remove her name from one of their residence halls. And it's like, what in the world is the problem here? Well, there were certain correspondence, there were certain letters that she was writing to a friend of hers, which contained, um, you know, um, less than polite uh, descriptions uh, with regard to race. And is that in and of itself enough to take some of these things, you know, some of these honors away? What I've been reading from certain reviews and, and apologists for her is that, well, for one thing, if you take these people from this era, a lot of them spoke in ways that would kind of cause us to blush, you know, a hundred years later, you know, but, um, Rather, her depictions of Southern crudeness in some of her short stories actually served to promote civil rights. Now, was she picketing and an activist the way some would want her to be? No, not necessarily. But I think it's much too simplified in order to... uh, bring her into this whole nature of cancel culture. And I think it's kind of, um, it, it, it's sort of troubling what we've been seeing this summer, this phenomenon of secular sainthood, that judging historical figures as not pure enough and that sort of thing, you know, to be uh, to, to, to be revered or honored in some ways. I remember a leader of a retreat said something uh, years ago that I'll never forget. He said, in our society, like in the present day, everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. Right. Think about that. You know, so think about the importance of reconciliation for us as Catholics and in public life. When you don't have that means of reconciliation or that kind of perspective, you know, you're going to be very uh, severe and tyrannical with regard to some of these issues. You, you make me think of my uh, my history professor in theology, Sister Zoe. Uh, God bless her. What a, what a tremendous woman. But she... she she would always say, it's a good thing that God chose the apostles and I didn't, because if I'd, 
if those men were in my class, I'd have flunked every one of them. She said, you know, she's saying her point being, if you take the modern standard and you place it back on them through history, not a single apostle would pass the test. They, mm-hmm. they, and you look at their lives, what a mess they were and how they betrayed the Lord and did different things, yeah. or, you know? Right. And, it, and it, so, yeah. It, There's no sense of conversion <clears throat> and the value thereof. And, and, and so, but, but the, and I, I don't know, I, I think this whole cancel culture thing, I'm going to use the word, I think it's evil. I think yeah. I, we, it, it reminds me of the, a few years back when the radical Muslims were going through and blowing up all like the, the Buddhist in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and the Hindu expression. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things were like a thousand years old and they're, you know, these pieces of art and stuff and they're just destroying them. Like, well, you're just wiping out history. You're wiping out the memory. How, a hundred years from now, how are we going to know these things if we just go through and, and destroy them all? That, yeah. mm-hmm. and how, how about we look at them, understand them, be intelligent about them, put them in their proper context and place right. and appreciate the goodness yeah. that comes through the broken vessel. That, mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. there. Yeah, the pomposity of those who want to uh, obliterate monuments, statues, and things like that, you know, belies a certain ignorance, a desire not even and, to know what and, has and happened. I, and I think it's just too easy and facile to say, we're going to go and, and wipe this out and destroy Think of this, Father Gross. If, if every parishioner who's out there listening to you and I preach, not different for you, but for me, probably would sit there, and, and if they just pointed out the... The, my faults are failures. I'm like, oh, I don't need to listen to Father Leffer now because he's faulted in this area or in yeah. this area. Or he doesn't say it the way I want him to say it. And you misquoted can, something right, from and, the and Bible. So they can just, therefore, everything he says or does, I can just tune out and I don't have to let it affect my life. And that's the big... Flannery O'Connor, if you, you go read her literature, she is powerful. Mm-hmm. It, and the Spirit speaks to that language. And, and her, her literature is able to be on secular campuses and bring a powerful message of Christ into a secular setting. Right. I mean, who who else? I mean, there's other examples, yeah. but I'm just saying, <laughs> right. why would we wipe that out? A no-nonsense Catholic American of the 20th century whose uh, literature is accessible in a unique way. Not that, but if you look at her personal story, she was raised in a brutal environment where it was, mm-hmm. she was in this anti-Catholic environment her whole life. where yeah. she, And she found a way to use her gifts to take that very anti-Catholic expression and to show how Catholics need to convert. Right, and she she never picks on those who are brutal to her. She her literature is always very harsh on on the Christian and how the Christian needs to convert. So mm-hmm. an examination of conscience, so to speak. Very good. Um, we had uh, somebody who uh, called in, uh, Maureen, actually from New England, who would like us to offer up prayers and invite our whole community listening here on Real Presence Radio to offer up prayers for the baby who was saved from abortion yesterday outside the uh, abortion mill in Fargo. So uh, kudos to the people who, the unsung heroes, Wednesday after Wednesday, without fail, are being a witness of prayer and kindness and we want to really uh well how about we take a moment and just glorify god there heavenly father we we thank you and we praise you we worship and adore you father for all life every life from conception to to natural death heavenly father we thank and praise you for this life that was spared uh father in your divine providence just uh, provide perfectly for that child the mother the father and for the whole community now who will benefit from this life uh, we thank you and we praise you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And, and I'm uh, going to ask you to read this comment that came in from a mutual friend well, no, of before ours. Before we do that, one thing on Maureen, she's the mother of uh, Father John Paul Gardner. Ah, yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, New England, North Dakota, the suburb of Leffer, North Dakota. Leffer, the hub city. And That's right, just, yes. You know, a part of the Leffer, and, Leffer metropolitan area. <laughs> but Maureen is one yeah. of those saints in the making. She's she's far beyond, uh, I should probably blush to say that, but what a... I remember a, meeting her years ago, bless her 
heart. Holy and beautiful woman. And we thank you, Maureen, for your example and your, your children and your family. And, you know, and, and uh, Father John Paul, too. And then your other son, Paul, who's working his way through the seminary as well. And just, you know, okay, just a few contributions to the, uh, the Catholic world. So we, <laughs> yes, we, we thank those gardeners out there in New England. So Yes. And we also have a comment that came in from Ellen. Father Leffer and Father Gross are so good on Straight Talk. I absolutely love listening to them. I may be a bit partial, but I think they just click together. Thank you very much for that kind sentiment. We do have a few minutes to hear from you. 877-795-0122. And we have on the phone a friend of the show, Francis, calling in from Pizek. Welcome to Real Presence Live. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, the question I have is, during the high mass, basically, uh, the use of the censer and incense. Yes. Um, the reasoning and the significance of it, sometimes it's done two or three times during the mass. Um, I know watching EWTN masses, kind of the same thing sometimes, you know. Right. And I guess I'm just kind of curious on that. Okay. Yeah, you know, Francis, that is a great question. And just, again, to help people with knowledge so they can understand what's going on. Um, so... Let, let me do it this way. So it, it's a sign and a symbol, and it, um, it can communicate different things at different moments. So for, for example, oftentimes the majority when people experience it nowadays is during a funeral. And usually the, one of the, it's a sign of final farewell. And, and you'll see the, the priest will come and he'll incense the, the casket at that point right before the final uh, procession out. In that point, uh, there's two things going on. One, the, the, the Psalms speak about, um, may this incense rise up and tickle your nose, O God, that you would look down and hear our prayers, calling to God that he would, just like the book of Revelation where it says the, the, the souls in heaven, are their prayers rise up to God like incense burning at the altar, that he would look down and hear them and think of them, um, that he would remember this soul belongs to him. It also would, it's a visible sign representing the soul passing over to God at that moment. So that's a very particular moment. But, but the incense has a lot to do just with the spiritual battle that goes on. So um, the, the, the Shekinah glory cloud always represents the Holy Spirit. So when, whenever, whenever God would come down on, onto the Holy of Holies, it says this cloud would come down and, and the cloud would remind the people that, that God was present, he was there, Moses would, would enter in mm -hmm. at, at that time. Also the, the cloud was the one that protected them from their enemies when they when they passed through the Red Sea. So some of the more uh, traditional times that you would see incense would be the beginning of Mass, the procession comes in, and so the cloud of glory comes around the altar because the altar is the focus, the sacrifice of the Mass is going to take place there. One, it's, it's, it uh, incense drives forth all evil spirits. They cannot dwell there in that, that the holiness of the Holy Spirit coming down. It, it represents the sacrifice that's about to come. You offer sacrifice to God or incense to God and God alone. So that's one of the three gifts of the Magi, for example. So you, you start with the incense, the altar. The next one is would be at the proclamation of the gospel. And the reason proclamation of the gospel is the, the we stand to greet Christ who's coming to us through the living word. The living word is proclaimed. That incense um, reminds us that the Holy Spirit is coming down now in a very real way through the living word that is being proclaimed and going out so that the proclamation of the word is the living presence of God. And then again, the next time at the sacrifice of the mass, again, here God comes down to earth. It's it, everything from the conception, the life, the suffering, the death, um, the, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension, the whole Paschal mystery is there at that altar, that incense that drives forth evil, no evil is present, the holiness of the Holy Spirit's there, the eternal life is present, sacrifice of God takes place. That in incense through the smell 
and through the visible cloud reminds us that the Holy of right, Holies. Right, so in many cases also there will be a server who will incense uh, during the consecration of the Eucharistic species. Um, <clears throat> you may remember this, Father Leffer, since we're of the, the same age here. Um, uh, growing up, there was an American archbishop who was the um, prefect, I think, of the uh, social communications, Archbishop John Foley, and he had this kind of grand baritone voice. So he would narrate the Christmas Midnight Mass broadcast uh, from uh, St. Peter's Basilica, and one of the things that I loved that he would say, he would say, the insensation of the altar contains a twofold significance in the Catholic liturgy. So one of the things he was talking about there is that the cloud rising is representing, as you mentioned, our prayers going up to God. And then once that column builds, it's sort of, I, I believe the, the Hebrew word was the Shekinah, you know, the overshadowing of the presence of God, just like how during the Exodus, the people would not leave until the cloud departed. And so that way it was a, a guidance for them to, to travel on their and, way. And on that too, so that overshadowing, very exa- exactly <coughs> said, r- reminds us of the, and there's only one, you know, a couple places in scripture, the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Blessed Virgin Mary and Christ was conceived in her. And so that overshadowing of the cloud over the people of God. The same terminology. Yeah, is and included. Christ is being conceived in us through the reception of the word and the Blessed Sacrament at the sacrifice of the Mass. Right, right. And so you think about these uh, num- numerous symbols that are being incorporated. It also speaks to uh, the Catholic nature of embracing things that we have, uh, you know, with, of using maybe the word sacramentals with a small s of, of employing things in the world rather than to draw a stark divide. No, I, I have to say this. So I, I'm, I'm, one, I'm a, one of those who favors using incense and because I'm very strong in those, those visible signs and things. In all of our senses, we, you know, we touch the holy water, we, we eat the Eucharistic meal, we smell the incense, we see the beautiful stained glass windows, we hear the sacred music um, right. that comes in. So, um, so I, I've been known, and people who have allergies and stuff, so I get the non-allergic uh, incense. Hypoallergenic. Yeah, we, hypo, we try to do all these things to accommodate, and, all that, and I can appreciate people who, who struggle with that or whatever, but when, during this time of live streaming, when we were, so I had the freedom to use as much incense as I wanted to because I'm the only one there, right? And people are watching, and I had all these viewers. Father's there somewhere behind me. You know, I had all these viewers who would write into me, that text me after. Where did you go? They'd say things like, they'd say things like, as soon as I heard that chinking of the, the chain, I started coughing already. Or another, another one, I had a past parishioner, he'd write and say, like, Father, I was coughing again from all that. I couldn't, it was coming through the TV screen. It was so thick, you know. So. Yes, indeed. Well, we want to thank those who contributed to this episode of uh, Straight Talk. And, uh, we want to just give that number for your future reference, 877-795-0122. Most, uh, most episodes of Real Presence Live, we are uh, incorporating this uh, time frame in the uh, bottom of the first hour during the, uh, the uh, second half of the first hour of the program. And we thank you for your participation in that. So uh, we've got one hour left to go on our program today. We're going to be visiting with someone who is going to uh, tell us about the importance of good literature in the Catholic faith. How many of us, for example, wish that our youth would read more books, watch less television or video games. I think especially during the pandemic, there's been a lot of, you know, trouble with that. So we'll dive into a great book recommended for young adults. We'll also visit with our dear friend, the Bishop of Winona, Rochester, Bishop John Quinn. Uh, All of that coming up in the next hour. Please stay with us as Real Presence Live continues. (laughs) 